Well, welcome to Burke Community Church. My name is Michael Coffey. If you're visiting here, we want to thank you for braving the elements and coming to visit here on such a rainy day. And would invite you to come back. The senior pastor, Dr. Marty Baker, is away with about 140 of our men at a men's retreat. And so I would not want you to miss the opportunity to hear him. He is truly the most gifted Bible teacher I've ever encountered in my uh, life. And so you've got a real treat if you've never heard him. Uh, he is the real French chef. I like to say I'm just the guy they trot out here to serve you some meat and potatoes when he's, uh, when he's traveling. So you've got a treat in store for you if you haven't heard him. And I'd like to also thank Isaac and the praise team this morning. They get here so early and they uh, lead us in worship. So thank you. And Show I know a little bit of etiquette. Uh, congratulations to you and best wishes to you. Uh, and so that's very good news for you. All right, let's talk about why temptation is so enticing. Uh, temptation. Even the word sounds like something bad, or it certainly doesn't sound like something good. <laughs> temptation. So let me ask, is temptation a sin? You got a 50-50 shot at getting it right. Is temptation a sin? No, no, what a learned crowd. No, it's not a, uh, it's not a sin. Even our Lord was tempted at least three times in the wilderness. Satan personally showed up and uh, had only list three temptations, may have been many more. But even the Lord was tempted uh, early in his uh, career and more than likely throughout it. Martin Luther is reputed to have said that you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from building a nest in your hair. And that's sort of the nature of temptation sometimes. But when you read the scriptures, you might be a little confused depending upon which version of scripture you're reading. If you're reading an older version like a King James version, you'll see in Genesis 12 that it talks about the Lord came to Abraham to tempt him. And you think about the prayer of the Lord taught us all to pray, commonly known as the Lord's Prayer, where he encourages us to pray uh, that we would not be led in temptation, but delivered from evil. So mounts a uh, second question for me to ask, does God tempt people? You got a 50-50 chance on that one too. Does God tempt people? Yeah, well, this is a great crowd. It's going to make it real easy to preach to y'all today. <laughs> Yeah, so that when you realize that the root word that's used there can be translated in a variety of different ways, temptation or trial or test, depending on the context that it's being used, but it's the same root word, it suddenly makes a little more sense in uh, some of these passages. So that when we read in Matthew 4, 1, that then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. The Spirit is leading him, it's after his baptism, and he's being led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil but he's under the Spirit's guidance and leading, you could be tempted, and I mean that pun intentionally here, to ask, does God tempt people? But the answer is found very clearly in James 1.13, where it says, let no one say when he's tempted, when I'm undergoing a trial, when I'm undergoing a, a hardship here, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. 
Now, the word he uses there is the exact same word he used just 11 verses earlier in the book of James, in verse 2, where he tells you, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials or testing. It's the same root word that sometimes can be translated as tempting or temptation. And then he tells you why he wants you to consider all joy that you're undergoing this trial or this testing, because your kind heavenly father is allowing trials to come into your life, he says in the next two verses, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect or matured or complete. Lacking in nothing, you may become more Christ-like. So you can have a trial in your life that a kind Heavenly Father is allowing in your life in order to mature you, to make you more Christ-like. But Satan could be using that same trial, that same testing as a temptation, and his goal is to destroy you, to hurt you. It can happen simultaneously. You see that in the book of Job. God is talking and he's... uh, commending Job for his walk, and Satan says, yeah, give him to me for a little while. Let's see how well he walks then with you. You got both a test to mature Job, to teach him things about God that he never knew, to help him understand uh, how shallow he is compared to an infinite being like God, teach him to trust that even though he seemed to have lost everything important in this life, he still had God. God is using it to complete him, to mature him, to help him to grow. Satan is using it strictly to try to turn him into an embittered person who walks away from God as a temptation. Both happening at the same time. Same root word. So the book of Hebrews in chapter says, My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. And he goes on to say, all these trials, all these testings, even these temptations, if Satan is using it, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained, completed, matured by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You can have both going on at the same time. One by a kind heavenly father who's using it as a test or a trial to promote Christ-likeness in your life. Another used by Satan, the evil one, with the pure unabashed attempt to trip you up and destroy you along the way. Now I appreciate what scripture teaches us about temptation because it speaks so plainly about it. Scripture teaches that Satan has got the entire world system at his disposal with all the gold and good things. And there are a lot of gold and good things in this world and all the glitter that passes for gold and not so good things. He uses this world system as a temptation. He knows that we are fallen since the days in the garden. He knows we have a sinful mind, a sinful flesh, and he uses that sinful flesh against us in temptation. And he uses it because he has legions of demons at his command as the commander-in-chief of the demonic forces to trip you up, to make you stumble, to make you fall. And then the scripture goes on to teach us more about ourselves, that you are fallen creatures. I am a sinful man. I came in this world sinful, I'll go out of this world sinful, redeemed by the blood of Christ. But I will sin every day of my life as I'm in this world here. And so he says, you've got this fallen nature. You've got these lusts, or it can be translated as desires if you want. You've got these desires, you've got these lusts. 
Your flesh, it always wants more comfort, always wants more ease, always wants to have things be better for it its way. You got this lust or these desires of the eyes. You always want more than you can have. You're never satisfied, never satisfied, always coveting for more and more. You've got this boastful pride of life. It's always about me. It's always important that I come out okay. It's always about how I'm doing, maybe at your expense. You've got this boastful pride of life. It's part of your nature. It's been that way ever since the fall of man. So it makes me want to ask another question. In light of all that Scripture clearly teaches about temptation and the forces that are working against us, why does temptation work so effectively? Why is it so enticing to us? I appreciate the book of James because it shows the progression, or maybe the better word would be regression, of going from temptation, which we already saw is not sin. It's not sin to be tempted. But see the regression or the progression from temptation, which is not sin, to willful acts of sin by each and every one of us. He shows us what happens. He says that, look, don't blame God when you're tempted. We already looked at that verse. And instead he says, but... Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts or desires. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Then I love it. He's a, I love James as a preacher. I wish I could be as good as he uh, is. He adds on just for emphasis, don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. The problem is you. You is it. You are the reason that you're struggling so much with the temptation. Here's how it works. I have a fallen sinful nature. You doubt it? Ask Laura Cronauer Coffee, who's been married to me for 38 years. She won't flinch from telling you. Yes, he is a fallen sinful person. I have my own sinful lusts and desires and traits and stuff. James uses, interestingly enough, a fishing and a hunting term here to talk about mine and your sinful desires. It's like that picture of the bass that I had whenever I started. He's safe in the murky shallow of the water and in the reeds. But then a temptation comes in, a line with a writhing worm on a hook, and he's tempted. He sees the worm, he sees the food. He doesn't pay too much attention to the hook that's hanging down there. Or a glittering lure goes out there, he sees it. It looks like a bug that hit the water. He doesn't see the four things hanging down his hooks aren't legs, they're hooks. He's attracted to it, so he breaks cover from the reeds. He breaks cover from the darkness because he's tempted toward that. It's like an animal thinking it's an easy meal and he doesn't realize he's heading straight for a trap. The word that's used here, it says that I'm carried away by my lust, by my desire, so that I'll break that cover. The word is actually more literally translated, dragged away by my own desires. It makes me break cover. It makes me go for it whenever I see the temptation. And what happens then is that that very desire inside of me, which is coming from deep within me, from my sinful body, from my sinful mind, James says it conceives. Isn't that an interesting word? That it conceives. You look up the word conceive in any dictionary, including a Greek one, and it'll say that it means create, to plan, to imagine. And you can see the process that happens with all of us when we start being tempted. I start thinking, I need that. I really need that. I deserve that. 
Besides, nobody else is here. Now, what am I going to do with this once? The rationalization, the planning, the conception, the growing that takes place there. And so my sinful nature is tempted. The lure hits the water. And then I start to think, how good it would be to have that, how much I want that, to get that, to take that, to experience that temptation, which leads to the third part of the progression or regression, that now that that lust or that desire is conceived and it's grown, it's giving birth to an act which is sin. And sin gives birth and leads to death, all types of death. Certainly spiritual death happened in the garden. And we are spiritually dead before Lord until we accept the payment of Christ in our life because it leads to death. Relational death. If I'm unfaithful to my wife, if I'm addicted to porn, it kills the relationship that I should have with her. Physical death. Some of y'all, I think, come just every week. Watch the weekly decay in me as I get older and older here in the process or something. I'm not going to get out of this life alive. I'm not going to be the first Christian to live forever. There's a physical death that comes because of my sin. Emotional death. When I come here to work, Boastful pride of life that dwells inside me. If I'm cruel and mean, believe my own press reports about being a pastor and get to this. I don't have time for that. There's an emotional death that takes place as I'm cruel and mean to the people that work here day after day. So you see, James lays it out there. And he says, don't be deceived, brothers. It's you. It's in you. And Satan just... Uses it. So if we were to flip open the lid and look in Satan's tackle box here to see what it is he does to make sin so enticing, the interesting thing is when you look in there, there's not a whole lot of lures in that tackle box. He doesn't need a whole lot. He's expert at the ones that he's got. He's had a few thousand years to perfect them. Let's look at three biblical examples, but it's really the same lure. It's really the same temptation. What he's going to do with you first is he's going to start to dialogue with you. Problem is, when Satan dialogues, it's always with lies. Jesus said he's the father of lies. He summed them up. Satan, he's a liar, he's a thief, he's the destroyer. So in the temptation of Eve in the garden, he starts off with a dialogue filled with lies. As he starts questioning, did God really say we're just having a dialogue here. Did God really say? No, no, no. He knows that if you do that, you'll be like him. We're just dialoguing here. Well, you'll be like him. When David is tempted by Bathsheba and falls into sin, at first he's there in the palace. He's looking out across the way there. He sees a woman bathing and you can see the conversation, the dialogue. You deserve that. No reason why you shouldn't have that. You've been leading Israel. Besides, read the story. Your own wife, she's not treating you the way she should. There's no reason for that not to happen for you. You're the greatest king Israel's ever had. He does the same dialogue with Christ in the garden. 
I mean, in the wilderness, he uh, tells Christ, you can have rule over this entire world and all of its kingdoms, all of it. I'll give it to you. And you don't have to have that barbaric, horrendous, terrible cross and stuff. All you have to do is worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms right now. It's interesting. Christ, who identifies them as the father of lies, doesn't accuse them of lying at that point. Because it's a real offer. Satan has it. He is the prince of the air. He is the ruler of the principalities in this world currently. He's offering the kingdom. But you don't have to do that thing planned by the Godhead that you have to go die. Just fall down and worship me. I'll give it all to you right now. I find that interesting that Christ doesn't call him a liar there at that point. But accepts that this is a legitimate offer. And if you think that Christ willingly went to the cross, you're right. But in another sense, the man Christ is the same one who sincerely prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let this cup pass, but not my will, but yours. So when Satan says, you can have it, and you don't have to go through all that, it is a temptation. What he does next, after he starts the dialogue filled with lies, he starts to fan the desire that's inside you and your fallen mind and your fallen flesh. It says in the book of Genesis that Eve saw the fruit. It was pleasing to the eye. It was desirable. It was good for food. It was food. They took a bite out of it. It was food. It looked good for food. We got a whole garden here full of food, but boy, that one that I just can't have, it looks good. She saw that it was good for food, believed it would be desirable to gain wisdom. It is. Not the wisdom she thinks, but she's correct. David, looking out there, sees a naked woman across the way as she's bathing. And like Eve, what he's looking at is pleasing. It's desirable. It's interesting, because go back to James about how then it starts to conceive and it grows. He stands there, he just keeps looking. Then he sends for word. Find out who she is. Gets word back. She's a married woman. Now the rationalization, the conception, the growth really has to start taking place. Oh, just this once. I do deserve this. Bring her on over. Let's talk for a while. It's interesting. Christ experiences real temptation there in the wilderness because it is his destiny to rule this world and rule the universe. All of these, do you see it? Same lure, same thing. Start off with dialogue, lies, fan flame of desire that's in there. Same game plan over and over and over again. Dialogue, tempt you, arouse, lusts and desires. It's interesting to me that Christ the only one of the three who successfully resists this temptation and defeats Satan's attempt there. You know what it says in the scripture in that wilderness thing when he successfully uh, resisted Satan and all the temptation that was there? It says the devil left him until a more opportune time. You think somehow another that Christ had three temptations in his life and oh, well, he got through that, okay. No, it was probably constant. It was unimaginable. Those long nights that he would spend in prayer while the disciples are sleeping. 
there in the garden right before he goes to death for you and me where it says he's literally having blood break out on his head because of the pressure. A more opportune time. That's what he did with David. It's interesting, when David started out doing great things like killing Goliath, delivering Israel, learning how to lead the army, would go out. Nothing quite like a combat zone to make you realize how dependent you are upon God. But at the time of the Bathsheba incident, it said that the army went out, but David stayed behind. Believe in his own press reports. I don't need to do that anymore. I'm the greatest king of Israel. Whatever. He stayed behind. And he has a lot of time there to look out through there and be tempted. That's why you can hear about a Christian minister sometimes who has a powerful ministry for decades, doing wonderful things. And suddenly you just hear something so incredibly foolish and stupid that he did. It destroys his reputation, maybe loses his family, crushes his ministry, hurts and disappoints hundreds or even thousands of parishioners and followers. Satan waited for a more opportune time. He started off well, started to believe his own press reports along the way. You know, 1 Peter teaches that Satan prowls about like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. It's constant. It's constant. So how do we resist temptation and prevent it from conceiving and turning into sin in our life? This is going to be a short part of the sermon. I don't have anything better than what Christ did. He's the only one who's ever done it. I've never done it. How do you do it? You do it the same way he did. He answered each and every one of Satan's lies and dialogues by simply quoting scripture which he'd memorized. There is the key point which he had memorized. He wasn't suddenly flipping through a Ryrie study Bible there in the wilderness. <laughs> it was in his head and his heart already. I can't tell you how many times a verse like Galatians 6, 7 has saved me. Your TDY, you're going up to your hotel room, you get in an elevator, an attractive woman in a slinky dress gets in, trying to be a gentleman, you say, what floor? You don't hear anything, you turn and look, she's staring you just straight in the eye and she says, what floor are you getting off at? And suddenly Galatians 6, 7 saves me when it says, Michael, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he's also going to reap. How many times does 2 Corinthians 5.10 help me? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for the deeds, for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Memorized. So it can be there at the moment that I need it. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 119.11, Your word I've treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. When I first became a Christian, the poor guy that was assigned, I guess, to try to disciple me, how would you have liked that job? And uh, he said, you need to memorize some scripture. Why? Why do I need to do that? Well, it's going to help, uh, help your walk with God. This was the first verse I ever memorized. Your word I've treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
So the memorized word of God helped Christ during his temptation. How am I going to do any better than that as an application point? Number two, Christ always, always, always walked in the spirit. He said that time and time again. He said, I don't do a thing my father doesn't tell me to do. I don't say a word my father doesn't tell me to say. I'm not trying to live my own life. I'm trying to let my father live his life through me. If I try to control my life, I can guarantee sin's inevitable. Inevitable. If I'm letting Christ lead my life, control me moment by moment, he's still the only one that has the power to resist temptation and sin. That's why the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, moment by moment, walk by the Spirit. Why? So that you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. It's a cause and effect. Walk in the Spirit. Have the memorized word in your life. We looked at three examples here this morning. All tempted by Satan. All with the same lure. Only Christ was victorious by the power of the word of God in his mind and his heart and his soul. And by walking in the Spirit of God. Now who knows more about temptation? Jesus or me? Since I'm so prone to it. Oh, without a doubt. It's not even a contest. I get tempted. About half a pound of pressure. I'm done. Christ. Living through me. The temptation comes. Like a metal bar. Half a pound. Pound. 10 pounds, 20 pounds, 100 pounds, 1,000 pounds, 2,000. Doesn't snap. Doesn't snap. He was victorious over sin every day for over 30 years of life upon this earth. And then he died a death he didn't deserve for my sin and for yours. So that he could be our unblemished, sinless sacrifice. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you don't leave us on our own, but you give us a perfect word to teach us about temptation. You give us the spirit to help us resist temptation. You protect us against such an enemy. We ask that you would lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Thank you for such a powerful Savior in all of our lives. We worship you. Amen.